0: Have you ever looked at something and just said, that is just wrong? Now here's the point. Here's what we're going to read in the text. We're going to read that there are sometimes God looks down at his church, at the way we live and what we do or don't do. And I think there's times God just looks at the Son and the Holy Spirit and says, that's just wrong. There's no other way to explain it. When his people refuse to get involved in feeding people who are hungry and giving clothing to those who need clothes, those who are in desperate need and the church shares no interest at all in the peoples whose lives are less fortunate. He just said, man, that is just wrong. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today, today, today with Jeff Vines. Hello, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Bill. Thank you for joining us. Today, Pastor Jeff speaks about God's definition of social justice. He's looking at Isaiah chapter 58, and he'll talk about how we need to have a changed attitude towards things that are just wrong. Here's Pastor Jeff to explain this more. this is a message very close to my heart. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. I'm going to be dealing with verse one through 14. Okay. Isaiah 58, one through 14. Now, before we get into the text, quick question. Have you ever looked at something and just said, man, that's just wrong. Now I found a few things. Here's the first thing I found. I don't know if this cat is alive or dead, but I, I, I have a feeling that it's no longer with us. And somebody put a sign up, free cat. Now, now, now that's just wrong, isn't it? See, I can see. That's just wrong. Seriously, this is just wrong that you would show that, but it, it makes the point, okay? I like this next one. Here is a chicken eating fried chicken. Now that's just wrong, isn't it? That's just wrong. Okay. I love this. Walmart. You got to love them. A correction notice. It says that the four for $10 price shown in our flyer for old Dutch chips is incorrect. The correct price is two for five. (laughs) Don't you love that? I mean, that's just wrong, isn't it? Say that together on a count of three. One, two, three. That's just wrong. All right. And who comes up with this? A cheese grater for toilet paper. That. <laughs> Say it on the counter: one, two, three. That's just wrong. Okay, uh, I did put skinny jeans in here, but I decided not to do that. <laughs> How about this? Even though the '80s had the best music, <laughs> '80s haircuts. I mean, that's just wrong, isn't it? What were we thinking? <laughs> How about baseball fans? Sometimes I see, especially Red Sox fans. Why do they do this? And you knew this was coming, Raider fans. They're just—that's just wrong, man. That, thats just wrong. Now here's the point. Here's what we're going to read in the text, and we're about the Bible. We're going to read that there are sometimes God looks down at His church, at the way we live and what we do or don't do, and I think there's times God just looks at the Son and the Holy Spirit and says, "That's just wrong." <laughs> there's no other way to explain it. There's no understanding. And it's very clear in scripture, especially Isaiah 58, when his people are not involved in loosing the chains of injustice in their world. When his people refuse to get involved in feeding people who are hungry and giving clothing to those who need clothes, those who are in desperate need and the church shares no interest at all in the peoples whose lives are less fortunate when he looks down and he sees the church and they fail to provide shelter for people who don't have homes, when they neglect prisoners and poverty and people in need, when they don't feel the pain of loss in Mexico and Houston and Florida and Puerto Rico, when it doesn't bother them and they kind of just go on with their lives, when they have pity but not mercy. There can be no doubt, according to scripture, that if the spirit of God has truly penetrated your heart, then the gospel has transformed you from the inside out. And the gospel has made its way into your life. And the Bible says a time and time again, that if the gospel's in you, that you're going to feel differently, think differently, you're going to live differently. And the Bible says that you're going to be involved in social justice. Now who defines social justice? It's a politically charged term, isn't it? Who defines it? Who who gives us the measuring rod? Who has the last word on what social justice is? Well, Isaiah 58, if you look at verse 6, God speaks to his people and he says, "Is, Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? You know, let me just say something there quickly. That poor wanderer term could be translated immigrant. Just so you know. When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And then notice how he finishes the passage in verse 14. He says, if you pay attention to these matters and start living like you should, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When it comes to social justice, the Bible speaks a clear message. God has the last word because he had the first word. And the first word was this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because this is his world, only he gets to define social justice. Nobody else. No political system. No socialist. No Republican. No Democrat. Only God. But in the West, we don't think like that. In fact, look at this quote popular from someone. I'm not going to list their name, but trust me, if you want to know who it is, just Google it. The liberal West still presents a basis for morality, a disgusting farago. Uh, That's a word that means uh, hodgepodge, okay? Of Judeo-Christian religiosity and scientific pragmatism, which we have to discard and accept that we are just mechanistic accidents. We have to awake from the dream that there's such a thing as justice and morality and realize that like gypsies, we live in a world that is deaf to our music and is as indifferent to our hopes as it is our suffering. So here's what the West tells you. Wake up. There's no ultimate justice, just as there's no ultimate morality. There's no God. There's no father in the house. We're the byproduct of random genetic mutation. So there's no justice. And the world is just as indifferent to your hope as it is your suffering. Someone said life is a pointless litigation before an empty bench. You can complain all you want, but there's no justice in this world. And they'll tell you the reason there's no justice in this world is because nobody truly knows what it is. That's the world you're left with when there's no God. But the Bible says that God determines and defines what is just and what is unjust. So God, not you, not me, not the majority, not the minority, And no political system or economic theory, just God. Now, here's the pushback. And I'm really begging you to stay with me this weekend, okay? (laughs) Somebody will say, well, haven't there been incredible injustices in the church (laughs) throughout church history? And the answer is yes. All kinds of atrocities. But if you read Isaiah, you can see where God anticipated this. He knows that you can look religious on the outside Oh, yeah, but the gospel never truly penetrates your life. Verse three, he says that the people say to God, why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, God says, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. What's he saying? God says, you look religious, man. You show up to church. You do all the right rituals. You even fast. You even pray. And then you go out and exploit your workers. You don't pay them a fair wage. You take advantage of them. They're nothing more to you than a means to an end. You say you know God, but you live as though you don't know God. You wear your robes. You bow down. You pray. You go to your little small groups. You say the right words, you sing the right songs, but the gospel has not gotten into you. And I can tell God says, by the way you treat each other. Now, what happens here is very convicting. And I'm going to hammer this now just a little bit so that we make sure we're on the same page. The problem is not that we are not radical as Christ followers. I mean, we are. We come to church every weekend, at least a lot of us do. We go to small groups, we go to rooted, we sing the songs, we pray, we fast, we do devotionals, we do all those things. The problem is not that we're not radical. The problem is we're not radical enough. The law of God has gotten into us, but not the spirit of God's law has never penetrated us. So rather than pull back on the word of God... What God's going to teach us through scripture is go deeper into it. God doesn't say stop fasting. He says your fasting doesn't go deep enough. He doesn't say stop going to church. He says your church experience doesn't go deep enough. Did you ever read Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King? Most of you probably not. This is exactly what Martin Luther King did. What did he struggle with? He struggled with Christ followers who looked religious but violated a fundamental truth of scripture that there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, black or white, slave or free. We're all one in Christ. It was the Christians in the South who believed in segregation and the abuse of the African American. So Martin Luther King struggled with how the Bible Belt of America, people who were so deeply involved in church, religion and the Bible could live such lives. But he was a smart man, because if you read his speeches, what did he continue to do? Quote scripture. He believed that if he could just keep pushing people down into the Bible, the Bible they believed in, if they could go deeper into the Bible, that racism and segregation over time would be dealt a debilitating blow. So all in his speeches, he calls on white Christians to take their beliefs more seriously. And one of his favorite quotes came from the book of Amos where he would say, what? Let justice roll down like waters. What does that mean, by the way? It means that we should have a fuller embodiment of God's law written on our hearts. We got to get out of the shallow waters and go into the depth of God's truth. To let the waters of the Spirit of God wash over us. And he continued to ask the Christians in the South, how can racism flourish in the Bible Belt? But if I can push you down into the word of God, I think you'll hear God saying to you, that's just wrong. Because Martin Luther King, he had his issues like everybody else. In fact, if you read a lot of work by Martin Luther King, you'll realize he struggled in his own life with what he believed in some of his practices. He wasn't a You know, people say, well, he's a hypocrite. He said one thing and did another. Well, welcome to the church club. <laughs> we all believe one thing and struggle to practice another. But his biggest struggle was with Christians, his brothers and sisters. And he knew that if he was ever going to change racism, that the ultimate motivation for social justice would only come from the word of God. So to push people down deeper into it. Now notice what people in Isaiah's day did in verse 2. They did all the right things. For day after day, they seek me out. In other words, they pray. They seem eager to know my ways. They want to know the ontological nature of God. They want to know theology. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. They even look like they want a relationship. But yet in Isaiah 58, God is very disappointed with them. And the key verse is they seem eager to know my ways. On the outside, it seems like you love me, God says, but I know better I've made no real difference in my life, in your life rather. And if the people said to God, what's your evidence? God would say, you don't love the poor. That's my evidence. You don't come alongside the oppressed. You don't clothe the naked. You don't visit those in prison. You don't give water to those who thirst. You know what you find in the Bible, folks? You want a litmus test for if you're a Christ follower or not? Here it is. (coughs) Here it is. Are you concerned to the point of helping the poor? You know, come on. Uh, let's get real for a minute. If you've read the New Testament, how can you possibly believe anything else? Matthew 25. Do you know what Jesus does in Matthew 25? He channels Isaiah 58. He says there's a difference between those who are going to spend eternity with God and those who are not going to spend eternity with God. And it's quite simple you'll know them by how they treated the poor. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. (laughs) That comes right from Isaiah 58. The litmus test of whether you truly know God and he knows you is how you are relating to the poor. It's a cause and effect. It's how you know that God knows you and you know Him. It, I'm gonna hammer, keep, keep with me here. Because I know you, you come on, Pastor Jeff, move on. No, not yet. <laughs> Why doesn't God come to them and say, hey, you guys are worshiping, and some of you are worship leaders, and you pray and you have a great gift of excitement and passion and you attend your little groups of accountability. Why doesn't God look at us and say, dudes? He got 80% of this right. Not bad. But he doesn't say that. And here's why. Because he knows that the manner in which they're doing these things, even these things are not acceptable. God keeps using phrases like, it appears like, it seems like, because the real issue is with their hearts. Not their activity. The problem is why they're doing what they're doing. You say, Wait a minute, Pastor Jeff. Are you telling me that I can do all these things and God's not going to notice? You mean I can come to church and worship and do prayer and all these and God's not going to notice this and give some credit to my account? You do realize that if you're asking that question that shows right there, you don't have a relationship, the one God wants, with you. And the evidence that you don't have a relationship with God, verse three, why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? That's a horrible prayer to pray. What you're saying to God is, why have you not seen this good that I've done? Why have you not recognized? Why have you not credited this to us? Look at what we've done. Going to church, we pray, we fast, we lead worship, we lead a small group, we teach. I thought, God, this was some kind of quid pro quo arrangement. I do good for you, you do good for me. God knows they don't truly love him. They love themselves. They don't serve God out of gratitude for what God has done. They serve him out of what they hope to get from God in the future. Now you can see why love for the poor is a litmus test because you can be episodic. You can go to church, small group prayer, and seem as if you have a vital relationship with God, but you cannot be episodic when it comes to serving the poor. When you come along somebody that's in need, you take their pain and their problems and their hunger and the disease on yourself, and you've got to pour everything into them without any expectation in return. And their problems are going to become yours. And you're going to sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice with no expectation. And you do it because you love them. Jonathan Edwards, the great 17th century preacher said, In many cases we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he is not likely to be otherwise relieved... We should be willing to suffer with him and to take part of his burden on ourselves. Else, how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? But the question is this stay with me. Who lives like that? Who lives like that? who lives willing and ready to stop what you're doing in your pursuits and go help somebody that's in need? Who does that? Who would ever live like that? Can you say Jesus? That's who? What is the supreme ethic in the Bible? They asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He connects them because they're inextricably tied together. You can't love your neighbor until you love God, but you can't love God until you know what God's done for you. But once you do know what God's done for you, you'll do it for other people. Once you understand the measure of God's grace and mercy to you, you will extend a similar measure of grace and mercy to others. That's how it works. When you get close to somebody, and that's that's the thing with God. He knows you're not close to him because you don't hurt for what he hurts for. You're kidding yourself. You're still in this for what you can get out of it. You guys, isn't it true that over the course of your marriage, your wife has changed you? She was banking on that when she married you. Let's be honest. Most wives, when they say yes to the guy that asks to marry, they say, okay, he's not perfect, but over time, I'll craft and mold and shape him. (laughs) It's true. My wife said that she married me because she believed that train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't fall from it. But I've noticed that the more intimate and close that I've come with my wife, it's true. Our hearts are similar. We don't have a lot in common. We don't. But we have major things in common. You know, I never had a cup of tea before I met Robin. I, I, I quite like tea now. I, didn't, I never had any Indian food. Now it's my favorite. We both have a deep love for the Shona people, the indigenous people of Zimbabwe. We both have a deep love for Indian pastors who are giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. And my wife's heart hurts most for hungry people. And that's rubbed off on me. Because when you love somebody, you start to share with them their vision, their agendas. God is simply saying this to his people. I know I don't know you and you don't know me because we got nothing in common. The most fundamental aspect of my heart, this is at my core, and it's not you. And if the gospel was truly in your life, you would be as passionate about the poor and suffering as I am. Instead, you pity them, but there's no mercy. And even what you do, the good that you do, the going to church, the reading your Bible, all that stuff, you do it because you think it's some kind of quid pro quo arrangement. You don't do it because you love me. You do it because you love you. And God is saying, this breaks my heart because it proves that you don't know me, that we're estranged from each other. And again, you say, well, I want evidence of that, God. And God says, you don't care about the poor. You know, I don't don't think God plays favorites with sports teams, although I do think he likes the Dodgers more than the Angels. But (laughs) Tim Keller says he does play favorites with the poor. The poor are different when it comes to God's playing favorites. God does not want a society where people, some people are poor. It's even more against his will when some are poor while others in their vicinity are rich. Jesus is on the side of the poor for it is they who are being wronged. Now, did you hear that? He says poverty in the midst of a Christian community is a justice issue. I know what some of you are thinking. You got to stay with me. I'm surprised nobody's walked out yet. You know, I've told you numerous times when I went to Rwanda to preach in the prisons after the genocide. And the last time we were there, they took us into this high secure prison. 11,500 prisoners in a prison that was built for 4,000. And I'd rehearsed my sermon all night before. I was kind kind of scared, kind of concerned, didn't know what it was gonna be like. And they opened the iron gates and shoved me through there with the translator. And just as I got on stage with these 24 pastors behind me, I threw away all my notes, and I just felt an overwhelming presence of God like I never had before. And he, 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 it's like he was saying to me, tell them the story. And, and I told them a story, and I won't tell you the whole story. But for some reason, God wanted me to tell these, these, these murderers who walked across the street with a machete and killed their neighbors over a million in 90 days just because they were a different tribe. So I'm preaching repentance to these prisoners and I tell them the story about the little boy who has candy, the little girl who has a jar of marbles and they decide to trade their little brother, little sister. Only when they trade, the boy withholds some of the more precious stuff from his jar while the girl gives everything. When I told that story to these prisoners in Africa, when you're really angry, you hiss. So you go, and I'm sitting there thinking, These guys are mad at this little boy for withholding three marbles. They went across the street with a machete and sliced up their neighbors. And the reality is we don't like injustice, but we can't see it in ourselves. But when two people become close to God, as a couple or as a family that... Their heart's supposed to hurt for what his heart hurts for. And Isaiah says, if it doesn't, you don't know me yet. That's harsh. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. No matter what side of the issue you come down on, you are a Christ follower and a citizen of the Kingdom of God. And that means that the call on your life is clear. That as an individual, you know that God is a God of justice. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts.